0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 3 verse 31 through chapter 4 verse 8. One summer I was sitting at the beach in Zadar talking to a small group of college students about the gospel. There were five or six of us sitting on concrete slabs on a rocky beach. The apparent leader of of the group of friends was quite relaxed and confident and I asked if he believed in God. He thought God was more of a power source. I commented that to see God as a power source would mean God could not love us nor we love him. It eliminates love. He said he believed God was a power source and that God loves us. We moved on. He claimed to believe Jesus was from God and was not from God, that hell exists and does not exist, and that nobody and everybody goes to heaven except there's no real heaven. So the problem wasn't that he lacked consistency in his thought, but consistency didn't even seem to incur to him as a value. He had this smorgasbord of faith. It was like we're at this buffet of Christian ideas and Hinduism and humanism and agnosticism, and he'd just look over the buffet and fill his plate with whatever looked good to him, and then he'd claim to believe it. And I I think what really frustrated me was that he kept disagreeing with me while insisting that he was agreeing with everything I said. There was no coherence, no consistency to the whole range of his beliefs. And biblical Christians pride themselves on their consistency. It all comes from the Bible, right? The Old Testament must agree with the New Testament. Well, the Bible being consistent is one thing. We as Christians, understanding that consistency is quite a different thing. You know, we can really argue anything we want to argue by pulling a verse from here or a verse from there. We can end up with this same kind of smorgasbord faith. Paul has just made some pretty strong claims. He's claimed that human beings are declared righteous by faith, And he has claimed that this was witnessed to by the law and the prophets, but was it? I mean, what then was the whole point of the law? What was God doing with Moses? Isn't it really correct to say that Paul has nullified the law through this gospel faith? That's the charge being leveled in Romans 3.31. Have we just voided out the first five books of the Bible with this surprise verdict of the gospel? The law is not necessary. The law is not effective. How does Paul answer this charge? Well, it's telling how he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, you know, that's right. We have moved on to grace. Don't worry about the Old Testament. Don't worry about all the things there that trouble you. You've got the new. Let's just start and go from there. Paul's not going to say that because he's not just making this up as he goes along. The Old Testament is the word of God. And if his gospel does not agree with the Old Testament scriptures, then his gospel is not from God. He's got a big problem. On the other hand, if his gospel does agree with the Old Testament scriptures, then he has the support of biblical authority in what he's teaching us. Paul is going to reach back into biblical history to provide a precedent for the argument of the defense. And it's not just any precedent. He's going to go back to the precedent of Abraham and the first covenant with the not-yet-nation Israel. And Paul's going to show us that justification by faith has been God's way and God's plan all along. Let's read Romans three thirty one through 4, 8. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God reckons righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We start with the challenge followed by Paul's short answer. So do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul's going to have to explain that short answer. How is it that the gospel of faith establishes or fulfills the law? The long answer is going to come in chapters 5 through 11 when Paul answers the two questions that he raised back at the beginning of chapter 3, and Paul's almost ready to start in with those two questions, but not yet. First, he wants us to know that the premise is all wrong. The gospel is not a rejection of the law. The gospel is the establishment of the law. There is newness here, but it's not wholly new. It's the newness of fulfillment, and this is what the law was looking forward to. To that, we might respond, okay, Paul, prove it. To which Paul answers, great, I will. And this really is great because we now get Paul helping us understand Old Testament covenant and how Old Testament covenant fits together with the gospel. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul's contention is that no flesh can be justified in God's sight by the good moral or religious works they do. So let's look back at Abraham. How was it for Abraham? What does the scripture say? See, Paul's authority is the word of God. That's the foundation for Paul's understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. What does the scripture say? Paul tells us, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's a quote from Genesis fifteen six from the life of Abraham. The basic idea here is the same as the gospel. There is a way for righteousness that is not accomplished by what we do, but comes through faith or comes through belief. The word reckoned that's used in this Genesis fifteen six is a key word for Paul in this chapter, and it, it occurs 11 times, five times here in verses 3 through 8 in what we're looking at. So we need to understand what this word means. Uh, English Bibles tend to translate the word here as counted or credited. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. I like reckon, probably because I'm Southern, but it does a good job of carrying the double meaning of the Greek. The word could mean to consider. God considers Abraham's belief as righteous. It has to do with God's thought towards Abraham. And that's the most common use of the English word today. You know, I reckon I reckon he's an okay guy. It means I think he's okay. I consider him to be Okay. An older use of the word reckon is to count. You reckon up somebody's bill. Hold on, let me reckon that. That means to count it up. It's an older use, but it fits with the Greek well. It means to count or credit something to somebody else's account. It's an economic term. Paul wants to make sure we understand the term, so he clarifies in the next verses. If you get a job and are paid for that job, then your wages are not reckoned to you or credited to you as a gift. Your boss is not doing you a favor. You worked. You deserve to get paid. And if you want to boast about it, that's fine. You did the work. But there's another way. Verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, this is not the case of the lazy person looking for a handout. This is the case of the drowning man caught in a pit of mud who cannot get out. There is no way out. We are unable to earn our righteousness. But if we're willing to trust God, righteousness can be reckoned to our account. Paul adds here another scriptural support. This time he's quoting David from Psalm 32, 1-2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's a great passage to support the idea of the atonement from Chapter 3, verse 25, our sins have been covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. It's also a great verse for Paul to quote for another reason. The phrase at the end of verse 8 is probably translated in your Bible as, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The original text is using our word for reckon. Literally, it is, whose sin the Lord will not reckon. The word provides a literary link between Genesis 15, 6 and Psalm 32, 2. And Paul's picked up on this link. But even more importantly, he's emphasizing a conceptual link. Genesis says it positively, righteousness is reckoned to you by faith. And then the psalmist says it, same thing, but in the negative form, by faith, sin is not reckoned to you. So positively, righteousness is reckoned. Negatively, sin is not reckoned. Both are good things. It's good to have righteousness reckoned and sin not reckoned. The text of Genesis fifteen six clearly and powerfully supports Paul's contention. So by clearly teaching that righteousness comes by faith, and by teaching that this was true of Abraham. Still, if we want to get the full force of Paul's precedent with Abraham, we need to go back to the original story. It's just like the quote from Habakkuk back in verse chapter in chapters 1, verse 17. Paul's use of the Old Testament is not proof texting, where somebody wrenches a verse out of context to prove a point. Paul's use comes from an understanding of the much broader context from which he draws out a representative or a key verse. That verse is intended to stand alone in Paul's context. So we, we don't have to go back to Genesis 15, 6 and in order to read what's here in Romans chapter 4. To understand Paul's point, the the words he used work. It works here, but it does invite us back. But it does invite us back to the original context for even more insight. So let's follow Paul back to Abraham's story in Genesis. And I'd love to look at the whole life of Abraham. That's Paul's broad context, but that that would be overdoing it a bit right now. Instead, I'm going to limit myself to the major covenant moments in the Abraham narrative, therefore, uh, I'm thinking about the covenant promise in Genesis twelve one through one to three, the covenant ceremony in Genesis fifteen, the covenant sign in Genesis seventeen, and the covenant test in Genesis twenty two. So I'm just I'm going to briefly mention the covenant promise and then focus in on the covenant ceremony in chapter fifteen, and I'll leave the covenant sign and the covenant test. For, for next time. So God calls Abraham to leave his family and go to a new land, and this is at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. This is a new chapter in covenant history with God. Prior to Genesis 12, God's made a covenant with all of humankind, first through Adam, and then he, he renewed that through Noah. Then at the Tower of Babel, God switches to a divide-and-conquer strategy. He decides to work from within one special covenant people, and from them reach out to the rest of mankind. And not wanting to start with any nation already proud in their own identity, God chooses an older couple unable to have children and makes covenant with them. This is what he promises Abraham. So let's read it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is great news for Abraham. God promises the blessings of land, children, provision, protection, and purpose. Through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. There, there's no reference to the making of covenant in Genesis twelve one through three. What we have here is God's promise, but we don't yet have a formal covenant. The word covenant's not going to come until chapter fifteen. But in Genesis, Genesis twelve is like a betrothal that can come a, a long time before the marriage ceremony. So we don't have the ceremony yet, but we've got the promise. Let's go now to covenant cut in chapter fifteen. This is where we find our key verse that Paul quotes in Romans four three. And I'm calling this covenant cut because whenever you read that God made a covenant in the Bible, the verb translated made is actually the Hebrew word cut. You do not make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And the reason for this is that ancient covenants were ratified by a symbolic act of sacrifice. So today we ratify a marriage covenant by the signing of a document before witnesses, which is a lot less messy. But they ratified covenant by killing animals. Though there was a symbolic meaning involved. So here's a, we have thousands of, of, of tablets from the ancient Near East giving us examples of covenant that are outside of the Bible. And here's just one example. This is from a treaty be, between Ashur Nirari V of Assyria and Matilu of Arpad, a smaller city state which was north of Israel. And Ashur Nirari was the great king, he's over an empire, and Matiilu was his vassal. The treaty required ratification by sacrificing a lamb and cutting its head off. So it's messy. But the, the treaty explained the symbolism of the sacrifice this way. This head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Mate'ilu. It is the head of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. If Mate'ilu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off and its knuckle placed in its mouth, the head of Mate'ilu be torn off and of his sons. The sacrifice performed by the vassal was what is called a self imprecatory curse. You're calling a curse on yourself when you go through the ceremony. And it's not that different from the idea of a shotgun wedding. So a boy gets a girl pregnant, and daddy says, you're going to do right by her, aren't you, boy? And boy says, yes, sir. But just to make sure... The boy understands his responsibility. Daddy brings his 12-gauge to the wedding. And the, the symbol is a curse. If you break your oath to my daughter, then you get to meet my shotgun. Another way of the same symbolism in the covenant oath in ancient Near East was to cut the sacrificial animals in two and then require the vassals to walk through the pieces declaring, if we break covenant with you, O king, then let us be cut in two like these animals. And we, we can hear the threat of that covenant, that kind of covenant oath being carried out in Jeremiah thirty four eighteen to 20. So listen to this. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hands of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So covenant cut ratifies a covenant through sacrifice, which is a symbolic curse that you bring on yourself. Let this happen to me if I break covenant with you, great king. That sets us up for Genesis 15. So we we had covenant promise in, in Genesis 12, the next stage of actually cutting a covenant or ratifying a covenant is now going to be is going to happen in Genesis 15. The dialogue that precedes the covenant covenant is where we find Paul's key verse: Abraham was reckoned righteous by faith. In fact, that verse comes in in the very center of the dialogue, and on either side of that verse, uh, we have a parallel pattern. So, in verses one through five, God is going to speak. Then Abraham's going to speak. Then God's going to speak again. Then in verse 6, Abraham's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Then in 7 to 21, we get the pattern again. God is going to speak. Abraham's going to speak. God is going to speak again. So we get God, Abraham, God, faith, God, Abraham, God. That's the pattern of the text. Now let's let's walk through it. Verse 1, God speaks. After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you, your reward shall be very great. Now, now Abraham's going to speak and listen to Abraham's words and think about whether it sounds like faith to you or not. So verses 2 and 3, listen to what Abraham says. O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. How does that sound? Does that sound like faith? This is, this is one of the challenges of biblical narrative. The words someone speak do not always give you a clear read on his or her heart. This could be lack of faith. Um, Abraham's not believing God to fulfill his promise to give him descendants. Or it could be something else. It could be the weakness that comes with being a human being. You know, we are dependent and we don't see what is going on. It takes so long. It's om- it's it's been almost ten years since God made the promise. How long, Lord? When, Lord? How are you going to fulfill the promise? If I have no descent, is it really going to be through a servant of mind? How is this going to work out? And often in biblical narrative, it's the response of God that gives us insight into the heart of the person God sees inside, God understands how the words we speak relate to what is going on inside. And so it's significant that God does not rebuke Abraham right now. God sees into his heart and it's as though God puts his arm around Abraham's shoulders and guides him outside to look up at the sky. And God says this in verses four and five, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Notice here that God does not answer Abraham's question of how is it going to work out. Abraham still has to choose to believe. But God does speak to Abraham's heart and he gives him reassurance. Your descendants will be numerous as the stars in the sky. So Abraham believes the promise of God. And that's where we get our key verse, verse 6. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The assertion of Abraham's faith in verse 6 causes what comes next to stand out. We're going to have God speaking again and then Abraham speaking and then God speaking. And God starts by restating the promise again. So listen to this, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So the first half of the dialogue was about the descendants, now we're talking about the land. And as you listen to Abraham's response, again, ask yourself, does it sound like faith? Abraham says this in verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Does that sound like faith? Has the same problem, and I love it. It's it's so human. How Lord, Abraham has no land at all. He's surrounded by other peoples. He's wandering around with his flocks, looking for water and pasture, trusting the goodwill of his neighbors. But he owns none of it. And before he dies, the only land to his name is going to be the cave he was allowed to buy, in which to bury Sarah. How Lord, I believe, but I can't see it. And there's a deeper question here. A question that's not expressed directly by by Abraham, but it's addressed in God's answer. And since God addresses it in his answer, we can, we can be sure that it's something that God sees in the heart of man. God, God knows what needs to be spoken. It's kind of like the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus wanting to know how to get into heaven, and he claimed to have held to all the law. And Jesus saw the pride in that young man. He saw that the only hope for him was to be shaken. And so he spoke a challenge straight to his heart, straight into his internal identity, and he said, all you have to do is sell everything you have and follow me. God saw straight into Abraham's heart, and the the words may have been saying, how are you going to accomplish this, Lord? But there's a deeper how question. And the deeper how question for each one of us is, how are you going to accomplish this, Lord, through me? Isaiah, the righteous prophet, saw a vision of God and he immediately cried out, I'm undone, I'm under a curse, for I've, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, Who can say, here I am, Lord, I'll be your man, and have any hope of living up to the calling of God? Isaiah was overwhelmed by, by the very nature of God and the reality of his own sin. So the biggest part of the how question is not, how is God going to do it? But how am I going to stay faithful to God so that the mission can be completed? I'm sinful. I cannot continue on faithfully. Whether nobody else sees it or not, I know in my heart that I do not have what it takes to be God's man, good, faithful, true, and pure. Your holy God, how do you complete your promise through me? Well, for Isaiah, God took his fears away by touching his unclean lips with a burning coal and telling him, behold. This has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. God took care of his sins so that he could be God's man. The next thing he said was, here I am, Lord, send me. God has the same message for Abraham, but a different way of communicating it. How can it be, you ask? Let me tell you, but not in an illustration, but by by a formal cutting of covenant. Now what we're going to get next, the whole from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, it's all going to sound strange To us, but only a part of it would have sounded strange to the Israelites. So here's the part that would have made sense to them. When they hear this, they know exactly what's going on. So verses 9 through 11. So he said to Abram, Bring me a three year old heifer, and a three year old female goat, and a three year old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. The people hearing this, they know what this is. Abraham is preparing for a covenant sacrifice. This is the cutting of covenant. But then things start to get strange. So from verse 12 to 18, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about that the sun had set, and that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So verse 18, on that day God made a covenant with Abraham. What What does the Hebrew literally say? It says God cut a covenant with Abraham. But what was Abraham doing during this covenant ceremony? He was asleep. He was as passive as you could possibly be without being dead but this makes no sense abraham's supposed to walk through the sacrificial animals it, you know we, we understood he's he's preparing a covenant ceremony instead we have a fiery torch and a smoking pot go through the pieces and when we when we ask what smoke and fire symbolize in the book of moses we we know immediately the fire and smoke on the burning bush the fire and smoke on the top of mount sinai the columns of fire and smoke leading the israelites through the wilderness Fire and smoke is the presence of God. The presence of God passes through the pieces. And again, this makes no sense. The great king never walks through the covenant animals. The vassal does that. The point is for the vassal to bring a curse on himself, saying, if I break covenant with you, great king, then let it be done to me what has been done to these animals. And yet here we have God walking through the cut up animals. Verse 12, a deep sleep fell over Abram, terror and great darkness fell on him how are you going to keep covenant with me abram you're not going to if left to you the only guarantee is that you would break covenant with me no flesh will be justified by his works you must lie passively in deep slumber you have no role here i will walk through the way you keep covenant with me is that i die i take the covenant curse on myself God is making a promise. He's offering himself as payment for our debt. 2,000 years later, darkness is again going to cover the land, this time at the sixth hour. Those who saw it were afraid. God himself died on a cross, making payment, fulfilling the promise that he established so many years before. That's the answer to the deeper question of how this is going to work. Not by works, by grace. My substitution for you, given by grace, received by faith. So the center of this chapter records the faith of Abraham. The end of this chapter records the grace of God. The faith of human, the faith is human. It's questioning. The grace of God provides the anchor, the sure foundation. Grace and faith work together like ice on a lake. You know, it takes faith to step out on the lake. And if you have such great faith that you can run and you can jump out onto the lake, what happens if the ice is only two inches thick? You shoot right through. If the ice is a yard thick, but your faith is weak so that with great fear you edge inch by inch out onto the ice, will it hold you? Yes. The strength of your faith is not what holds you up. Weak or strong, whether you crawl out or jump out, you need faith. You have to step onto the ice. You have to receive the gift offered. But it is not the strength of your faith that ensures your salvation. It's the strength of God's arms that hold you. And his arms have done the job. Stretched out on a cross. Those arms don't break. They don't grow weary. They've done the work that must needs be done. Death is required for our rebellion against a holy and righteous God for our sin. So death he paid. Those arms are still stretched out. They're stretched out to you. And all you have to do is say, yes, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What shall we say that Abraham found? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham provides Paul with the precedent for his defense. We have his main point. Righteousness came to Abraham through faith in God. Genesis 15, 6. So in the rest of the chapter four, Paul develops for us the implications of this main point from this key verse, and we'll look at how Paul does that in our next lesson. But we'll stop there for now. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.